Uh, we're going to begin with a quiz this morning. Um, here are some famous last words of significant leaders up on the screen. Here's the first one. Etu Brute. Hands up. Anyone know who said that? Well done. At least according to Shakespeare, Julius Caesar. Um, Julius Caesar, his words before Brutus stabbed him in the back. Uh, what about these last words? I'm bored with it all. Um, hopefully this isn't you 10 seconds into the sermon. Um, it's Winston Churchill. Uh, never one to mince his words. Uh, finally, what about these last words? All my possessions for a moment of time. I, I wouldn't have known this either. Um, apparently, uh, these were the last words of Queen Elizabeth I. So here we have a queen humbled in the face of death. Well, today we're going to focus on the last words of an even more significant leader from history. This morning, we're going to focus on the last words of God's King David. Have a look at verse 1 in your Bibles. These are the last words of David. And notice four things about King David in verse 1. First of all, he is the son of Jesse. And so here's a reminder of David's humble beginnings. Do you remember when Samuel came knocking on Jesse's door looking for a king? Um, Jesse left David out in the fields tending the sheep because there's no way that David could be chosen to be king. He's the son of Jesse. But secondly, David's the man exalted by the Most High. The one left out by David, sorry, the one left out by Jesse is the one lifted up by God. Thirdly, David is the one anointed by the God of Jacob. He's anointed with oil to show that he was God's chosen one. And then fourthly, we're told that David was the hero of Israel's songs. And here's one of those songs up on the screen. Um, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. I'm not going to sing it because uh, I don't know the tune. Um, I'm sure Fraser does. And, uh, and I bet it's a belter. Don't sing, please, Fraser. <laughs> um, so this morning, we are focusing on the last words of God's King David, the hero of Israel's songs. And just before we move on, here is a challenge for us. How much do we love singing about King Jesus? How much do we love singing about King Jesus? You see, we've seen throughout 1 and 2 Samuel that King David points us to the king, King Jesus. Uh, he is the anointed one. That's what the word Christ means, Jesus Christ. And King Jesus, he wasn't from humble beginnings, but he made himself humble. He gave up the riches of heaven and made himself poor and humbled himself even to death on a cross to win the great victory over sin and evil and the devil so we can be forgiven for leaving him out just like Jesse left King David out in the fields. Jesus humbled himself 
to the cross. And now he's been exalted to the highest place. So how much do we love singing about him? He might be the hero in writing in the songs that we sing together at church, but what about our hearts? Do we love singing about King Jesus? Let's fully engage our hearts this morning as we lift up our voices to heaven's King as we sing together uh, at least one or two more songs later on today. The last words of King's Uh, The last words of God's king, David, the hero of Israel's songs. But what is it that he is actually saying? Well, that's our second point this morning. God's king is speaking God's words about a promised kingdom. Have a look at verse 2. The spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. And verse 1 has already labelled David's last words as the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse. I wonder if you spotted that in verse 1. So here's a reminder that as well as being God's king, David was actually also a prophet. In Acts chapter 2, Peter says this, David was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. See, a prophet is someone who speaks God's words in the power of the Spirit. And here's some verses up on the screen from the book of Numbers. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with Moses, and he took some of the power of the Spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, The Spirit also rested on Eldad and Medad, and they prophesied in the camp. So a prophet is someone who speaks God's words in the power of the Spirit, and that's exactly what David is doing as we read his words in 2 Samuel 23. He's speaking prophetically in the power of the Spirit. But what is it that he says? Well, let's put verses 3 and 4 on the screen, and let's look at verse 4 first. David talks about the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. Now, on holiday in the summer, as a family, um, uh, grandparents included, we uh, woke up early one morning to see the sunrise over the sea, and it was a beautiful, wonderful memorable thing to do together to see the light break in through the darkness that morning the sun brings light but the sun also brings life look at verse 4 the brightness after the rain that brings grass from the earth it is grass by the way it's not grass little um, linguistics lesson for us all this morning for free Um, if you were a shepherd like David, when you think sun, you think photosynthesis. When you think photosynthesis, you think grass, you think sheep, you think life. The sun brings light and life. But what is this sun that brings light and life? 
Well, um, that's what David is talking about in verse 3, isn't it? Verse 3, the God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of the morning at sunrise. The sun that brings light and life is a person. It's a leader, a ruler, a king, someone who rules in righteousness and the fear of God. Now just think about David for a moment as a king. We have caught glimpses of light and life breaking in through the rule of David, haven't we? So in chapter 8, we even read these words. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. It sounds really good, doesn't it? Just rule, righteous rule. And we've seen light and life breaking in through his dealings with people like Mephibosheth. Uh, Do you remember Mephibosheth? Um, He was lame and he was descended from Saul, but David was really kind to him and provided extravagantly for him. He ate at the king's table and light and life we see breaking in. In chapter 21, David was even referred to as the lamp of Israel the one who brings light. But sadly, we've also seen darkness and death in David's rule too, haven't we? Um, David's adultery with Bathsheba and David murdering her husband, Uriah the Hittite. So when David speaks here of a ruler who, like the sun, brings light and life, then we need to remember that ultimately David is speaking prophetically here by the spirit about another king, another ruler. Do you remember what Peter said in Acts? David was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. David points forward to a greater king and a greater kingdom of light and life. And this is unpacked further in verse five. Have a look at verse five in your Bibles. In my, sorry, if my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. And you see, even though David's kingdom was this mixture of light and life and darkness and death, Nevertheless, David remains God's authorized, chosen king throughout his reign. His house, his kingly line, was right with God in that sense. And we've seen David repent, haven't we? And God graciously take away his sin. And there are two evidences in verse 5 that David remained God's chosen king throughout. And the first evidence is God's care of David. And we've seen this again and again and again, haven't we? Um, in 1 and 2 Samuel, his care of David. Verse 5, surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. And so we've seen God answering David's prayers, saving him from dangerous evil men like the dangerous thorns in verse 6 that are cast aside and burnt up. Think about Goliath and Absalom and Sheba, for example. We see God's care of David And secondly, we've seen God's favor resting on David because of the covenant that God made with David. Verse 5, 
If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part. This is the oath that Peter talks about in Acts chapter 2. We've seen this covenant, this oath, this promise. It was in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God would provide David with a greater son, who'd also be God's sons. If you see those verses up on the screen from 2 Samuel 7. A son who would also be God's son, a greater ruler and a greater kingdom, uh, an everlasting kingdom that was promised um, in the covenant to David. This is the king, this is the kingdom of light and life that David's prophetically, ultimately pointing forward to in these verses. God's king speaking God's words about a promised kingdom. Well, once again, all of this points us to King Jesus, doesn't it? Here's some words from the uh, book of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, through people like David, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. In the end, Jesus is God's king who speaks God's words. He's the son of God promised to David. And not only that, he's also the one who brings light and life. The son's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That word, radiance, the S-O-N, is also the S-U-N that finally dawns with the coming of Jesus. The radiance of God's glory bringing light and life, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And David was the lamp of Israel. Jesus is the light of the world. And so how should we respond to this wonderful promised ruler who brings light and life? Well, that's our third and final point this morning. God's king, who speaks God's words about a promised kingdom, he is served by mighty warriors. Now, here are the mighty warriors of the king listed upon the screen. There, there you go. Now, don't, don't worry if you can't read them all. Um, they're supposed to be small. The point is there's quite a lot of them. Um, now, j just think about these mighty warriors as, you know, it's, this is a bit like the, the honours board at Lords, where all the kind of glorious cricketers from yesteryear and today are listed. Or you could think about it as the credits at the end of a movie. In fact, Pete, if you don't mind. There you go. <laughs> There they go. Um, these are all the people, or they were, all the people who made a significant contribution for David. There's loads of details in these verses and loads of fun names um, that we haven't got time to go into this morning. So I just want us to just notice three things about these mighty warriors in verses 8 to 39. The first thing is... Just notice the remarkable victories that we're told about. That's the first thing, remarkable victories. For example, Joshab Beshebeth. Look at verse 8. 
He defeated 800 men in one encounter. Wow. It's like, bring it on. 800 men. Then there's Benaiah in verse 20. Have a look at verse 20. No, actually before that, Abishai, sorry. Have a look at Abishai in verse 18. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed. So it's not exactly, you know, it's not 800, is it? It's not 800 men. But it's still quite a lot, to be fair, isn't it? 300. Then there's Benaiah in verse 20. Uh, Benaiah, verse 20, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, he performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club and he snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and he killed him with his own spear. It's like an audition to be the next Russell Crowe when they uh, do a remake of Gladiator, isn't it? These are remarkable victories. Uh, Secondly, there's lots of remarkable courage on display in these verses. Look at verse 9. Next to him was Eliezer, son of Dodai, the Ahohite. As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pazdamim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated. But Eliezer stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. Everyone else's leg in it, Eliezer stands his ground. This is remarkable courage. There's more courage in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, when the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field and he defended it and struck the Philistines down. So once again, everyone's fleeing, but not Shammah. He takes his stand. This is remarkable courage and remarkable victories in these verses. But a third thing to notice in these verses um, is that these remarkable, courageous victories were actually all ultimately won in the end by a remarkable God. Did you spot that in verse 10? When Eliezer, verse 10, was standing his ground, it was actually the Lord who brought about a great victory that day. And did you spot it in verse 12 as well? As Shammah stood his ground in the middle of the field, verse 12, it's actually the Lord who brought about a great victory. And it's this fact that God is a remarkable God, that's what's at the heart of that really kind of strange-sounding event that's recorded in verse 13 onwards that involves a drink of water. Have a look at verse 13. During harvest time, Three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for a drink of water from the well, 
sorry, David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Now, we were in um, South Wales over half term a couple of weeks ago, and at one mealtime, one of my lads um, kind of got his drink of water, looked at it, it had a few sips, kind of smelt it a bit, and it was a bit like, the water down here in South Wales just doesn't taste right, does it? It's a bit weird, you know, much prefer the water back at home in Oswestry. There's nothing quite like the water that you grow up with, is there? I mean, for me, it's still the water of Kendall that is the best. And David fancies a drink from the well at Bethlehem. It's what he grew up with. I don't think he's seriously asking somebody to go and get him a drink here. I think he's just saying how much he would love it if someone did. But he speaks it out loud, and next thing you know, you've got three mighty warriors who have leapt into action. Have a look at verse 16. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, and they drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and they carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said, Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives and David would not drink it? And so at first glance, you kind of think, David, you are so ungrateful. What is going on here? But actually, it's the complete opposite. David is so grateful, so blown away by what they've done. He's like, I am not worthy of this water This gift that has been given to me at such great expense. I mean, these men were putting their blood on the line. It's a bit like the water is their blood. So only God is worthy of that. And so he humbly offers it up to God by pouring it before the Lord. David knew that the truly remarkable one the one who provides all these victories and the courage and the might, it's God. Well, what's all this got to do with us? Well, as we've thought about already, we serve the humble king. David poured out precious water or the blood of other people, as he calls it, to show his love for God. The Lord Jesus pours out his own blood on the cross in love for and obedience to his Father. This is the one we serve, brothers and sisters. Jesus is the humble one, the humble king. And we serve him as his mighty warriors. Uh, The book of Ephesians puts it like this, verse 12 in Ephesians chapter 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The battle we are to engage in as Jesus' mighty warriors is a spiritual battle. It's not about picking up swords and killing other people for Jesus. Rather, it's a battle against the devil, against evil, and against sin. 
Um, you see, World War II, even after VE Day, the Battle of Odak still rumbled on in Europe. And even though Jesus has won the victory um, over uh, the devil and sin and death, there are still battles that rumble on, even though the final outcome is secure and has already been announced, the cross and resurrection. Now, if like me, um, you don't feel like a mighty warrior, that's a really good place to be. And as I look around this morning, no offense, I'm not quaking in my boots. <laughs> Although I wouldn't like to have a fight with Pete Johnson. <laughs> um, if you're not feeling like a mighty warrior this morning, that's a great place to be because it's not our own might and strength that makes us mighty. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. It's our remarkable God who provides what's needed. It's his mighty power so that we can stand firm in battle for Jesus. So here's a challenge for uh, us to take into the week ahead. What battle do you need to engage in for Jesus this week? Think about that question. What battle do you need to engage in for Jesus this week? Have you ever noticed that when you sit down to read the Bible, maybe on your own or as a household, as a household or with whoever it might be, have you ever noticed that there's a million and one, a million and one distractions? The phone rings. The message pings, the milk spills, the toast pops, and I really like hot toast. The kids start arguing, the parents start arguing. We're in a spiritual battle, brothers and sisters. So what's it going to look like for you to stand firm and for you to make time in the Bible happen this week? Well, it might mean switching off the phone it might mean biting your tongue so, um, you know, Bible time isn't taking place in the context of some big argument. It might even mean eating cold toast, and I know that's hard. But delaying breakfast. Those sorts of things might pave the way to some small but remarkable victories this week. Or maybe there is a sin that you need to put to the sword this week. God says this, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Maybe there's a sin in your heart that you need to declare war on this week. It could be an ongoing battle, something you kind of continually struggle with, or it could be something that you've actually, to be honest, lived at peace with for far too long and you know that that needs to change. What's it going to look like to fight that sin this week? Maybe biting the bullet and telling a Christian friend would be a great place to start this week. Don't try and be a gladiator like Russell Crowe who does it all on your own. Enlist some other mighty warriors to help you. 
Living in the kingdom of light and life, it still actually involves putting some things to death. If you've got strawberry plants in your garden, you've got to get rid of the weeds so that the light can get in, so that the life can flourish. So what do you need to put to the sword in your life this week for King Jesus? Or maybe, um, one last example, maybe there's a conversation that you know God wants you to have with someone that requires courage and it feels like a battle and you're tempted to retreat and flee like we saw loads of people doing in 2 Samuel 23. Maybe you need to say sorry to someone and that's hard. Maybe you need to share the gospel with someone. Maybe you need to graciously challenge someone about something. Well, Paul says this. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly, courageously make known the mystery of the gospel. We have a remarkable God who can provide us with remarkable courage to bring about remarkable victories. So ask him for help and like Paul, ask other people to pray for you. What battle do you need to engage in for Jesus this week? Well, just take a moment to reflect on that question and then I'll pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of living in your wonderful kingdom of light and life. Thank you for our wonderful, humble, anointed and exalted King, the Lord Jesus. Strengthen us, we pray, this week to serve him in battle with the power, the might, the strength and courage that you provide. And we pray, Father, all of these things for your glory. Amen.